0: there, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is the 35th episode of PCPC. And for episode 35, we're going to be taking a look at Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, a scheduled flight from Amsterdam, Netherlands to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia on Thursday, July 17th, 2014. It's currently December 2023, and we are knee-deep in another holiday season. I don't know about you all, but I love the holidays. What's better than that period of the year where you get to curl up on the couch, put the birchwood edition of fireplace for your home on the TV, turn up the heat on the old thermostat, and pretend you have a real fire in your apartment? I'm a big fan of boozy nog this time of year as well. For those of you that don't know, Boozy Nog is just eggnog with your favorite booze in it. I personally like my Boozy Nog with Maker's Mark and a little fresh uh, nutmeg on top. For me, it's the taste of mid to late December. Anyways, I hope you're all having an excellent holiday season with your families and friends and loved ones. Or maybe you're just having a nice relaxing time by yourself. And that's good too. Fair warning, today's episode is very history-heavy. Just want to give everyone a heads-up at the beginning of the show. If you like history, you're probably going to like this episode. If history is not your thing, you might want to listen to something else. Maybe Aerosmith's fourth album entitled Rocks. I've really been into that record lately. Last Child and Nobody's Fault are both killer tracks. Anyways, if you have a moment, you should give it a twirl. Thank you to the Patreon crew and everyone that has ever contributed to our Patreon page. With grad school and now having a full-time job, it's been difficult to crank out new episodes for you all. It really means a lot that so many people have helped to contribute to our show for so long. I hope you all know that we really appreciate all your donations to our Patreon page. If you're interested in viewing our Patreon, the link is patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to the Patreon crew. A lot of the research material for today's episode was open source intelligence, publicly available online. Uh, Much of the analysis of the flight comes from the Dutch Safety Board's report on Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 The history section comes from many sources, including a history class taught at Yale University by Professor Timothy Snyder called The Making of Modern Ukraine. If you're interested, all 23 lectures from that course can be viewed on YouTube. Just a few more quick messages and then we'll hop straight into our story. Today's episode of PCPC is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy provider built for the 21st century world. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really difficult, especially when options are limited in your area. With BetterHelp, you can find a therapist that fits your schedule and your needs. No more worrying about driving across town getting stuck in traffic, and searching for a parking space, you and your therapist can meet from the comfort of your own home. With BetterHelp's trained professionals, you can make sure that you're practicing healthy habits and becoming the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. For more information and to get 10% off your first month, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com forward slash Plane Crash Pod. And thanks again to the folks at BetterHelp. We started this podcast a few years ago to confront our anxieties around flying. I didn't fly my first plane until around the age 15. So I've always been a bit of a nervous flyer, gripping the armrests on takeoffs and landings. I reasoned that if I could research and learn more about how aviation incidents of the past helped to shape the safe air travel system of today, that maybe my fears around flying would diminish over time. We like to point out at the beginning of each episode that we recognize that the events we discuss are traumatic events in the lives of many of our fellow human beings on the planet. With each incident, someone's sister or brother, father or mother lost their life, and we in no way want to be insensitive about that fact. We view these aviation incidents as historical events that are worth discussing because each incident helped to improve air safety for millions of passengers around the globe. And with that, let's get started on today's story. Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was a scheduled flight from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, Netherlands, to Kuala Lumpur International Airport, located in Malaysia. On Thursday, July 17th, 2014, the plane used for Flight 17 was a Boeing 777-200 extended range aircraft. The Boeing 777 was developed by Boeing during the 1980s in close consultation with senior executives at several major airlines. Airline operators communicated to Boeing that they desired a new wide-body airliner, As we've discussed many times before, there are narrow-body planes, planes with just one aisle and seats on each side of that one aisle, and there are wide-body planes, planes with two aisles and seats on each side of those two aisles. During the 1980s, airlines hit up Boeing and said, Hey, we've been flying older wide-body planes like the DC-10s. And the Lockheed Tristars for a few decades now, these planes are getting pretty old. They need to be moved to an airplane retirement home soon. So we need a new wide-body plane that is fuel-efficient, can fly a lot of passengers so we can make a lot of money, and has a long range. Can fly from continent to continent if needed. At the time, Boeing was still manufacturing my favorite plane, the wide-body 747 that has four engines. Also, Boeing was building the twin-engine 767 and making extended-range variants of the 767. But airlines told Boeing they weren't interested in any more 767 variants. They wanted a new plane, a plane with an even wider cabin than the 767. So, over the late 80s and in early 1990, Boeing starts creating designs for a brand new wide body plane. One with a cabin width 45 inches greater than the 767, a wide body aircraft powered by only two engines that accommodates up to 325 passengers and is even more cost efficient than the Airbus A330. In the early fall of 1990, Boeing announces that their new plane will be called the Boeing 777. Airline executives across the world see the designs for this new wide-body plane, and they're all very impressed. United Airlines puts in the first order for 34 777s in mid-October 1990. The first 777 was delivered to United four and a half years later, in mid-May 1995, as of 2023, just over 1,700 sevens have been delivered to customers across the world, and 2,149 orders for a 777 have been placed. The plane used for our flight today, Flight 17, was the 84th 777 built out of Boeing's Everett, Washington facility. The plane was delivered to Malaysia Airlines in July 1997, and was configured to have 33 seats in business class and 247 seats in the economy section. As of July 17, 2014, the plane had 76,322 flight hours and had gone through 11,434 flight cycles in its first 17 years with Malaysia Airlines. The plane had a few minor open-deferred issues, Apparently two of the overhead bins were having issues at the time, and it was noted in the report. Due to the long nature of the flight from Amsterdam all the way to Kuala Lumpur, Flight 17 had two captains and two first officers for a total flight crew of four. Captain Wan Amran Wan-Husin was 49 years old. Captain Husin had been a pilot with Malaysia Airlines for the previous 25 years. He had a wife and two young boys. At the time of the flight, Captain Husin had 13,239 flight hours and almost 8,000 hours on the 777. His first officer was First Officer Ahmed Hakimi Hanapi. First Officer Hanapi was 29 years old at the time. He was married and had a young eight month old son. First Officer Hanapi had 3,190 flight hours and 228 hours on the 777 at the time of Flight 17. Another captain on Flight 17 was 44 year old Captain Eugene Chu Jin Leong. Captain Leong was a passionate cyclist and motocross rider. He had two young boys home in Malaysia. And at the time of Flight 17, Captain Leong had 12,385 flight hours, with over 7,300 hours flying 777s. The final member of the flight crew was First Officer Mohammed Ferdows Abdul Rahim. First Officer Rahim was 26 years old at the time of the flight. He had 4,058 flight hours and almost 300 hours flying 777s. First Officer Rahim was the youngest of five siblings and was the first officer during takeoff for Flight 17. There were 283 passengers on board Flight 17. The Malaysia Airlines flight had a cabin crew of 11. And adding in the four pilots in the cockpit, there were a total of 298 souls on board Flight 17. So as we stated a minute ago, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 is a flight from Amsterdam in the Netherlands to Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia. The plane is scheduled to leave Gate G3 at Skippel Airport at 12 p.m. local time and fly for just under 12 hours to Malaysia, landing around 6 a.m. the following day. The planned route for Flight 17 is to take off heading north out of Amsterdam, then turn to the east and fly over Germany, then Poland, Ukraine, southwestern Russia, then fly over the Caspian Sea, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, cross over the Bay of Bengal off the eastern coast of India, and then finally land in Kuala Lumpur. The total scheduled flight time is 11 hours and 37 minutes, Flight 17 is scheduled to fly across Western Europe at an altitude of 31,000 feet before climbing up to 35,000 feet across Eastern Europe and eventually climbing to 37,000 feet before descending into Kuala Lumpur. The plane used for Flight 17 arrived at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam at just after 6.30 a.m. on July 17th. The incoming flight originated in Kuala Lumpur. So flight 17 is a flight headed straight back in the opposite direction, headed back where the plane had just had come from. Just before noon, the pilots of flight 17 are performing their pre-flight check in the cockpit, and the cabin crew is helping passengers stow their carry-on luggage items and get settled into their seats for the long 12-hour flight to Malaysia. There's a 13-minute delay before Flight 17 can push off from Gate G3 because the flight is overbooked. And there are a few late-arriving passengers from connecting flights. Again, the total souls on board for Flight 17 is 298, 80 of which are passengers under the age of 18. There's over 20 different family groups on the plane. After the 13 minute delay at 12.13 p.m. local time, Flight 17 finally pushes back from gate G3 and spends the next 18 minutes navigating its way across the tarmac to the top of Runway 36 Center at Schiphol Airport. The pilots of Flight 17 receive their takeoff clearance from the tower at Schiphol. And at 12.31 p.m. on July 17, 2014, the two Rolls-Royce engines on the 777 spool up, and Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 blast down Runway 36 at Schiphol before lifting off into the Dutch sky and heading towards the north along its scheduled flight path to Kuala Lumpur. Fifteen minutes into the flight, the Boeing 777 crosses into German airspace and passes through 23,000 feet on its way to its planned cruising altitude of 31,000. Eight minutes later, Flight 17 reaches its cruising altitude of 31,000 feet, as the plane is flying in the skies just to the northeast of the city of Dortmund, Germany. The plane continues on eastward at a rate of around 550 miles per hour, before crossing the German-Polish border, at about 51 minutes into the flight. At 1.51pm 1 Central Europe time, 1 hour and 20 minutes into the flight, Flight 17 passes just to the south of Warsaw, Poland, and climbs another 2,000 feet in the sky, up to 33,000 feet. Now, During these long 12-hour flights, it's commonplace to have two meals one towards the beginning of the trip, and one close to the end. As passengers are enjoying their first meal or just having a drink, at about 90 minutes into Flight 17, the 777 crosses into Ukrainian airspace at 33,000 feet, headed towards the southeast, towards its destination of Kuala Lumpur. Now, before we continue with Flight 17 any further... I think it's important for us to take a step back and examine the situation on the ground in Ukraine around July 2014. What is the nation of Ukraine? How did it come into existence? What are the conditions like on the ground, 33,000 feet below, that Flight 17 is about to fly over? To fully understand the situation on the ground, I think it's necessary for us to take a long look at the history of Ukraine so that we can gain a more thorough understanding of why the region was in the position it was during July of 2014. I think the best starting place for our journey into the past is around the creation of Kievan Rus'. What was Kievan Rus'? Kievan Rus was basically the first organized state that was recognized by other countries to exist on the territory that would later come to be the countries of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, Western Russia. Kievan Rus came into existence in the late 9th century. Prior to the formation of Kievan Rus during the 8th century, much of Eastern Europe was populated by different groups of pagan tribes. This region was covered with little pockets of tribes, and there was no organized state or country at that point in time. Just to get a little perspective on Europe as a whole during the 8th century and the power dynamic that existed at the time, there were the Franks in Western Europe that ruled over much of what today is France, Germany, Austria, and Northern Italy. The Franks were starting to wander eastward, And expand their reach and try to convert pagans to their version of Christianity, Western Christianity. On the other side of the continent, in southeastern Europe, in the area that we today know as Turkey and Greece, were the Byzantines. And just like the Franks, the Byzantines were starting to branch out from their home base or region as well. And convert people to their version of Christianity, Eastern Christianity. So those are the two forces uh, changing Europe in the 8th century. The Franks have their headquarters in Western Europe, and they're spreading out, converting pagans to Western Christianity. And the Byzantines are in Southeastern Europe, and they're branching out as well, moving upwards into the North, spreading Eastern Christianity. A third force acting on Europe at this moment in time were the Vikings. The Vikings were in Northern Europe, specifically in Scandinavia, and just like the Franks and like the Byzantines, the Vikings started branching out from their main region to explore for trade routes. The Vikings had boats, and they were hell-bent on finding a water route to southeastern Europe so they could engage in trade in the city of Constantinople, a city which is today known as Istanbul. During the 8th century, one of the big ways of earning money was to enter foreign territory, capture pagans, transport them to cities like Constantinople, and sell the pagans as slaves. And this is precisely what the Vikings did. They traveled down different rivers in Eastern Europe, met strangers, captured them, and sold them into slavery. So the Vikings familiarized themselves with many of Eastern Europe's rivers, and many of them didn't lead all the way into the south as they had hoped. But eventually they came across a river called the Dnieper, and the Dnieper took them all the way to the promised land It helped the Vikings efficiently travel the long distance from the Baltic Sea in Northern Europe all the way to the Black Sea in Southern Europe and gain access to Constantinople. The Vikings also discovered there was a nice stopping point on the river, a midpoint between Scandinavia and Constantinople. And this stopping point along the Dnieper was called the village of Kiev. A group called the Khazars were a settled people around Kiev. The Vikings, who were also called the Rus, Rus means men who row, decided we should settle in Kiev and blend in with the Khazars. And Kiev really developed into an important town. A great pit stop along the long waterway journey between Scandinavia and Constantinople. Now back to the slavery issue. People across Central and Eastern Europe quickly discovered that getting captured and sold off into slavery wasn't exactly a great outcome for them in life. Turns out that no one likes being sold off as a slave. But lucky for them, they discovered a loophole in the old early European slave trade system. And the loophole was this. You weren't allowed to be captured and sold off as a slave if you were a Christian. So suddenly, people in the pagan tribes of Central and Eastern Europe were highly motivated to embrace Christianity and fend off the possibility of being kidnapped and enslaved. So in the late 9th century and 10th century, there's an explosion of the formation of states across Europe. Forming a state basically means converting to Christianity at this moment in history. The Franks are spreading their Western Christianity, the Byzantines are spreading their Eastern Christianity. You basically just need to pick one and voila You're no longer threatened of being conquered and becoming a slave. Around this time, Norway becomes a state, Poland becomes a state, and for the region of our focus today, around the year 880, the state of Kiev and Rus comes into existence. So this is the starting point in our story about how this region of Eastern Europe developed and eventually the country of Ukraine came into existence. Kievan Rus' is the first organized and recognized state in this region, and Kievan Rus' would continue to exist from the year 880 all the way up to the year 1240. One of the more notable historical figures that came out of this Kievan Rus' period was Vladimir the Great. Vladimir the Great ruled Kievan Rus' from the year 980 to 1015. Both Vladimir Putin, the current president of Russia, and Volodymyr Zelensky, the current president of Ukraine, share his namesake. Vladimir the Great was a savvy ruler of Kievan Rus that capitalized on an opportunity to consolidate and grow power for Kievan Rus. During Vladimir's rule, the Byzantine Empire was in a state of turmoil. The Byzantine Emperor was being challenged, and he was in a weakened state. During this vulnerable period for the Byzantine Empire, Vladimir the Great made a smart political move and threw the power of Kievan Rus behind the Byzantine Emperor to help put down a rebellion in the Crimean region. In the year 988, Vladimir the Great was baptized into the Eastern Orthodox Church, and both this baptism and Kievan Rus's assistance with putting down the rebellion and threat to the Byzantines helped to solidify good relations between the Byzantine Empire and Kievan Rus for a lengthy period of time. During this time, the Byzantines established a permanent presence in Kiev and helped to build many churches. Another notable aspect of Kievan Rus is that this is the first time that a written language springs up in the region. Following the development of a written language, Secular laws are established to help resolve disputes between communities without having to resort to battles between tribes. Kievan Rus helps the region just become more civilized. And this is really the conclusion of the first chapter for our story on the history of Ukraine. As a quick recap of this first chapter, pressures from the Franks, the Byzantines, and the Vikings three different forces in Europe around the 8th century, eventually leads to the formation of Kievan Rus. Kievan Rus is a state that's recognized by other states. It embraced Eastern Christianity, develops laws and a written language. And the people of Kievan Rus are an interesting mix of different types of people. You got the Vikings from the north, Byzantines from the south, decentralized groups of tribes all throughout the surrounding land, and there's the Khazars, who were Christians, Jews, Muslims, and pagans, and they're stuck in the middle. All right, now we can move on to our second wave in Ukrainian history. Kievan Rus falls apart around the year 1240. So what the hell happened to Kievan Rus? Well, similar to how three outside forces, the Byzantines, Franks, and Vikings, helped to shape the conditions around the region in the 8th century that led to the creation of Kievan Rus. The next phase of development in this region after Kievan Rus was also shaped by three outside forces. These forces being the Mongols, Lithuanians, and the Teutonic Knights. During the early 13th century, the Mongol Empire was growing in strength spreading out very rapidly from its base in Eastern Asia, spreading eastwardly towards Western Asia and Eastern Europe. During the year 1223, the Mongols first encountered the inhabitants of Kievan Rus, and the Mongols defeated the Prince of Kievan Rus and his forces at the Battle of the Kalka River. This first engagement between Kievan Rus and the Mongol Empire was just a prelude to later events. The Mongols used this first encounter in 1223 to gain information and intelligence on Kievan Rus, and they left behind a number of spies before retreating back to the east. Seventeen years later, around the year 1240, with the aid of a steady stream of information from their well-placed intelligence sources, the Mongols return and come into conflict with Kievan Rus once again, but this time they brought greater numbers with them. A horde of around 40,000 Mongols storm various cities in Kievan Rus and slaughter or enslave almost everyone they run into. Prior to the Mongol invasion, Kiev was a vibrant and thriving city with approximately 50,000 inhabitants, After the Mongols destroy Kiev, only 200 buildings are left standing. Even though Kievan Rus was already weakening prior to the Mongol invasion due to economic issues, the second invasion by the Mongol horde around 1240 really spelled the end of Kievan Rus as an organized state. Almost immediately after conquering Kievan Rus, the leader of the Mongol horde, the Batu Khan, heads back to the east to deal with a succession issue inside the Mongol Empire. So the Mongols basically show up, destroy the place, attacking from the west, and then leave the area around Kiev and head east. The Mongols end up maintaining a presence in what is today Russia. So post-Mongol invasion, the region is left largely fractured. In the years that follow the Mongol invasion, The Grand Duchy of Moscow, also known as Muscovy, or the Principality of Moscow, was established in the year 1282. The Principality of Moscow was considered a state under the control of the Golden Horde, basically under the control of the Mongols, and they paid tribute or taxes to the Mongols. So that was one development of the Mongol invasion of Eastern Europe, Um, the breakup of Kievan Rus', and Moscow starts to take root in the 13th century and develop as a city and center of power in Eastern Europe. A second development from the Mongol invasion was that there was suddenly a power vacuum inside much of the lands of what used to be Kievan Rus, land between the Baltic Sea and Black Sea. In the late 13th century, there was no defined state or powerful ruler over much of the former Kievan Rus. And this really created an opportunity for someone to come in and swallow up all that land that was, at the time, a bunch of relatively disorganized and decentralized groups. Enter the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Today we know Lithuania is a relatively small country that sits along the Baltic Sea and shares borders with Latvia and Belarus. Well, in the 13th century, Lithuania was ruled by one of the last pagan rulers in Europe. The Teutonic Knights were roaming around the Baltics, these Christian crusaders trying to force pagans to convert to their preferred brand of Christianity. And feeling the heat from the threat of attack by the Teutonic Knights, Lithuania decides to spread to the south and to the east, and Lithuania just swallows up all that land and resources, that much of which used to be Kievan Rus'. During the late 13th century and throughout the 14th century, Lithuania expands dramatically. It takes over Kiev in the year 1323. Lithuania annexes land by telling the ruling families of the former lands of Kievan Rus', that they just want to marry into their families and collect some taxes from people. And the princes that ruled over these different small regions agreed to these conditions. By the year 1430, Lithuania has taken over a massive chunk of what is today Ukraine. Lithuania continues to spread to the south all the way to just north of Crimea. So just to do another recap again, I know it's a lot of info. In phase one... Three European forces, the Byzantines, the Franks, and the Vikings, provoked changes in Eastern Europe that led to the formation of Kievan Rus. And then in phase two, three more outside forces, the Mongols, Teutonic Knights, and Lithuanians, further shaped the region, and Lithuania takes over much of the land that we know today as Ukraine. Another huge player in shaping the history of Ukraine is a country we haven't talked too much about just yet, Poland. In contrast to Kiev and Rus, Poland chose Western Christianity during that period of time where states were quickly forming in the 9th, 10th, and 11th century. The region of Galicia, which today is an area in western Ukraine and southeastern Poland, developed for a long period of time under Polish rule. Galicia influenced future Ukrainian politics and language. Through a succession crisis in Lithuania, Poland and Lithuania developed close ties throughout the 14th century before officially joining together to form the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth in 1569 through an agreement known as the Union of Lublin. Once Poland and Lithuania joined to form one state, it becomes one of the largest and most populous countries in all of Europe. So we started out with a region full of disconnected pagan tribes, then we had the formation of Kievan Rus, then the Mongols show up attack and fractured Kievan Rus, Lithuania moved into those lands of decentralized rule and took over, and finally we went through Lithuania and Poland forming the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1569. Another major party that is very important to the historical development of the country of Ukraine are the Cossacks. The Cossacks are a large group of peasants that refuse to serve as serfs or be enslaved to a ruling power. They exist in southern lands between Crimea and Kiev during the 16th century, and their independence is very important to them. They don't want to be ruled... ...or controlled by anyone. They're very strongly identified by their desire for self-determination. They don't want to live as a subject to either a king of Poland or the Tsar of Russia. The Cossacks are a free people that have learned how to exist outside of any defined state or country. They raid surrounding territories for food and resources and often change their allegiances depending on the situation that's presented to them. One last group we should mention during this time period are the Crimean Tatars. Many of the countries and regions we've discussed today have been populated by pretty diverse populations. and Rus had Khazars, Byzantines, Vikings, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and Pagans. You know, a really interesting mix of people living alongside one another in one country. But when it comes to the Crimean Khanate, it was basically 100% Tatars. The Crimean Khanate was a part of the Golden Horde along with the Principality of Moscow and our direct successors of Genghis Khan. So now we know a few of the players shaping the region in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Kievan Rus broke apart during the 13th century, and those lands developed in many different directions. Some of it developed into Moscow Rus, some of it turned into Lithuanian Rus, some of it turned into Polish Rus, and each territory and people developed its culture, customs, and religion. During this period of time, Lithuania is expanding its territory to the south and forming a union with Poland. Moscow is also spreading its influence and in territory dramatically as well, expanding deep into the east and to the south. Now, something we should talk about that is still occurring today is Moscow's desire to gain access to either the Black Sea in the south or the Baltic Sea in the north so the Russians could develop a navy and establish a naval port. Most of the world empires prior to the Russian Empire grew their influence to a degree from their ability to traverse the seas, either establishing strong economic trading opportunities via sea routes or being able to militarily dominate distant lands through a navy. The British Empire, Spanish Empire, French Colonial Empire They all grew their influence by having access to the sea and building ships. In the 16th century, Russia was relatively landlocked. To the south, the Cossacks and the Crimean Tatars, they were in the area we call southern Ukraine and Crimea today. Essentially, the Cossacks and Crimean Tatars blocked the direct route from Moscow to the Black Sea. In the north and the Baltic region, where the countries we know today as Latvia or Estonia are, was at the time a region known as Livonia. Russia had its eye on trying to gain access to the Baltic Sea through Livonia, but they were blocked from that sea route as well. During the 16th century, Ivan the Terrible, the first czar of Russia, started the Livonian Wars, where Russia invaded and tried to take over land in the Baltics. The war didn't go well for Ivan. Russia eventually lost. But this story just goes to underscore that even 500 years ago, Russia was obsessed with gaining territory that wasn't theirs in an attempt to gain access to the sea, and enjoy the economic and military benefits of having access to an ocean. Throughout the 17th century, the Cossacks really established their reputation of being a thorn on everybody's side to a degree. The Cossacks prided themselves on being independent. They were instrumental in a number of Polish battles. They served as a buffer between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Ottoman Empire. The Cossacks often served as infantry during battles between the Poles and Ottomans. Cossacks were more or less aligned with the Poles until the middle of the 17th century. The Cossacks leader, Kemelnitsky was a nobleman that had a legal issue that he pleaded with Polish leaders to address. The Poles refused to treat the Cossacks as equals and wouldn't allow Kemelnitsky to bring his issue inside the Polish courts. This second class treatment led to the Kemelnitskyi Uprising in 1648, which was in many ways a Ukrainian civil war. It was basically a war between Cossack peasants and the Polish-Ukrainian nobles. Due to the uprising and the refusal of the Poles to recognize the rights of Cossacks, the Cossacks switched their allegiance over to Russia through the Treaty of Pereyaslav in 1654. The Cossacks swore allegiance to the Tsar of Russia, and Russia, in return, offered the Cossacks protection and a degree of autonomy over their own affairs. In the years ahead, Russia would use the Cossacks to put down threats from the Crimean Tatars. There was always a feeling of unease in Russian leaders towards the Cossacks. Russian leaders knew the Cossacks were independently minded, And at any moment, the Cossacks could change their mind about their allegiance with Russia. And this would threaten Russian access to the Black Sea and jeopardize Russians' dream of having a dominant navy. So though the Cossacks and Russians enjoyed good relations in the mid-17th century, Russians always looked upon the Cossacks with suspicion and a bit of an attitude like, we'll give you your freedom, but not that much freedom. We want to keep you happy and give you some freedom, but we also want to dominate you and keep you on a leash. In 1667, after 13 years of war between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Russia, the two sides signed a truce and divided modern-day Ukraine along the Dnieper River. Russia gained control of the territory to the east of the Dniepro, while the Poles controlled the area to the west. From 1667 to 1700, the Cossacks are still around, desiring their independence, but still living under Russian control. In the year 1700, Russia and the Swedish Empire commence the Great Northern War. The Cossacks sustain heavy losses during the beginning of this war, fighting on the side of Russia. Russia starts excessively meddling in Cossack internal affairs. And the Cossacks, forever seeking their own state and independence, strike a deal with Sweden to switch their allegiance from Russia to Sweden in exchange for the offer of their independence should Sweden end up successfully defeating Russia. Unfortunately for the Cossacks, Russia wins the Great Northern War against Sweden and 900 Cossack officials are executed by Russia for treason. This is basically the end of the Cossack dream of forming an independent state for the time being. Also, it sows the seeds of distrust between Russians and Cossacks and Ukrainians later in history. At a pivotal moment, the Cossacks gambled, exercised their independence, and went against Russia and lost. The Russians, in many ways, never forgot about that. So now we're caught up to about around the early 18th century. We just blasted through 1,000 years of Eastern European history. First, we touched upon phase one with the formation of Kievan Rus, then moved on to phase two with the Lithuania-Polish Commonwealth, the Cossacks, and the rise of Moscow, Now, phase three is really about the dominance of the Russian empire. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quitgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Throughout the late 18th century, after losing several wars and experiencing continued economic decline, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth finally fell apart completely, and its lands were split up between Austria, Prussia, and the Russian Empire. Known as the partitioning of Poland, the Russian Empire took over a large chunk of what is today modern Belarus and modern Ukraine through a series of three partitions in 1772, 1792, and 1795. So by the beginning of the 19th century, the Russian Empire has control of almost all of Ukraine, except for a chunk of what is today Western Ukraine. Another important event in the 18th century for the Russian Empire is the annexing of Crimea in 1783 from the Ottoman Empire. So the Russian Empire, which initially spread into and dominated Eastern Asia and swallowed up a lot of land to the south, finally in the 18th century moves west. Russian Empire takes over a lot of land that used to belong to the Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth, land that today we refer to as Ukraine, Belarus, and Latvia. Now, along with this takeover of new lands come new problems that the Russian Empire is going to have to wrestle with. As we mentioned earlier, the Cossacks switch from being loyal to Russia to aligning themselves with Sweden in the late 17th century. This switch of allegiance is still lodged in the minds of Russian rulers. In the 9th century, suddenly the Russian Empire has control of new lands with a lot of people from different cultures, and there's a bit of uncertainty about the threat that these people are going to pose to the Russian Empire. During the 19th century, there was a long period of russification. Russia puts bans into place, bans that forbid using the Ukrainian language. Printing or importing books written in Ukrainian was not allowed, Plays where Ukrainian was spoken were banned, and lectures in schools using the Ukrainian language were also against the law. Many of the names of towns and regions are changed during this period as well. Russia replaces the names of towns in Crimea and Ukraine with more Greek-sounding names. To try and stamp out the history of the Cossacks and Crimean Tatars, Russia's rulers would prefer a different narrative, that Russia is connected to the classical world and make everyone just forget that the Cossacks or Ukrainians or Crimean Tatars ever existed. In addition to changing the culture by controlling language, Russia also imports many Russians into Ukraine during the 19th century. The Donbass region in what is today eastern Ukraine is very rich in coal and has large natural gas deposits. This region provided 70% of the coal needed to the Russian Empire at the time. During the mid-19th century, there's an explosion of industrialization in the Donbass region, and many Russians moved to the region to work in the factories. So throughout the 17th and 18th century, the Russian Empire takes over the land of what is today Ukraine, And it tries to change the culture and language of the people that live there. They outlaw languages other than Russian. They change the name of cities. They import Russians into the area. The Russians really attempt to stamp out and outlaw teaching the history of the land. Russians want this area to be Russia. So they forbid teaching any history other than Russian history. By the mid-19th century, the Russian Empire is starting to weaken a bit. In 1853, the Crimean War began between Russia on one side and the Ottoman Empire, the United Kingdom, and France on the other side. The war lasted about two and a half years before the Russians finally pleaded for peace after almost half a million Russians were killed in the war. As a result of losing the Crimean War... And the uh, peace treaty that followed, Russia was forbidden from having naval forces on the Black Sea. Again, another moment in history where Russian naval aspirations are thwarted. After almost two centuries of rapid expansion for the Russian Empire, the Crimean War really was a turning point for the Empire, it really began the end of the Russian Empire's territorial expansion and started a long period of reform. In 1917, after almost two centuries of being a dominating force in Eastern Europe and Asia, the Russian Empire finally falls. World War I breaks out across Europe, and the war is very unpopular in Russia. The Russian people want basically nothing to do with World War I, but the Russian Empire joins the war on the side of the Allies. The Russian people, who are upset at a lack of food and economic opportunity in their country, blame the leadership of the Russian Empire for their poor living situation. Subsequently, the last emperor of the Russian Empire, Nicholas II, gives up power and abdicates in March 1917, bringing the Russian Empire to an end. The problem is, there wasn't a well-agreed-upon plan amongst the Russian people as to what kind of government Russia would have moving forward in the post-Russian Empire world. One group in Russia, the Bolsheviks, wanted to establish a socialist state. They're commonly called the Reds or the Red Army. Another group, known as the Whites or White Army, was basically all the Russians from all over the political spectrum that didn't want Bolshevik or socialist rule. And then, just to make matters even more complicated, throughout what was formerly the Russian Empire were these little pockets of ethnic groups in places like Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, and the Baltic countries. These ethnic groups just wanted their own independent country. They didn't want to be ruled by either the Reds or the Whites or some other distant leader that wasn't part of their group. So, due to the lack of agreement and these competing ideas of what kind of government should be established, a Russian civil war breaks out between all these parties. This Russian civil war lasts from 1917 to 1923. And for a brief moment between 1917 and 1921, while all the chaos of World War I and the Russian civil war is taking place, Ukraine declares its independence and becomes its own country. During World War I, while the Germans were not having a lot of success on the western front of the battle in France, they did pretty well on the eastern front. The Russian Empire is in chaos, and the people in the Russian Empire are fractured, and there's a lot of infighting. The Germans capitalize on this weakness and push deep into eastern Europe. The Germans establish a peace treaty with the Ukrainian National Republic, but then immediately do what pretty much every other ruling power in the history of Ukraine has done and will do in the future. The Germans say, hey, sure, you're independent and you can have your own country. You're totally autonomous. And yes, Ukraine exists and we recognize you. But in exchange for this, you have no choice but to give us all your food and resources. Not exactly a great deal or showing a high level of autonomy for Ukrainians. As World War I carries on, eventually the Germans pull back on the Eastern Front and lose World War I. The Bolsheviks win the Russian Civil War and drive the Poles out of Ukraine. And Ukraine's dream of independence ends in 1921 with the Treaty of Riga, where Soviet Russia strikes a deal with Poland to split much of what is today modern Ukraine, with the Soviets basically controlling all of Ukraine, except for the regions of Galicia and Volhynia. So by 1922, Russian Empire is no more. The Bolsheviks win the Russian Civil War and establish the Soviet Union. World War I is over, and Ukraine, though it has a short period of independence where it's not under the rule of a foreign power, Well, it becomes Soviet Ukraine, under the thumb of Moscow, so to speak. Almost all of what is today modern Ukraine is the same region as Soviet Ukraine, except for some very Western territories that fall under Polish control in the early 1920s. So we started in the 9th century with Kievan Rus in the year 880, and now we are all the way up to the 20th century, caught up to 1922 with Soviet Ukraine. Throughout the 1920s, there's an interesting, almost competition that takes place between Poland and the Soviets to try and win over the Ukrainian population that's inside their territory. Almost 15% of the population inside Poland during the late 1920s and early 30s is Ukrainian. That's a pretty sizable minority population, almost 5 to 6 million people. Initially, post-World War I, both the Poles and Soviets want to pacify the Ukrainians. They know the Ukrainians just tried to establish their own independence after the fall of the Russian Empire. Poland and the Russians know that Ukrainians don't necessarily identify as either Polish or Russian. The Ukrainians occupy land in Poland and the Soviet Union that is strategically very important. So both the Soviets and Poles want the Ukrainians to be pacified, and both are looking to stifle any attempts at an uprising or another fight for Ukrainian independence. As a result, in Poland, Ukrainians are granted a lot of freedoms. Ukrainian priests are allowed to perform religious services in the Ukrainian language, Ukrainians experience more personal rights. They're given more autonomy, better services, and greater access to government services. This period of better outcomes for Ukrainians is unfortunately short-lived. In 1928, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin takes control of the party. Stalin institutes a new policy in the Soviet Union, collectivizing agriculture. And this really harms the people of Soviet Ukraine. The Great Ukrainian Famine hits the people of Soviet Ukraine between the years 1932 and 1933. This event is known as the Holodomor and results in the deaths of 3.5 to 5 million Ukrainians. Similar to how the Germans in World War I treated Ukrainians as a colonized people, If you remember, the Germans supposedly give the Ukrainians their independence, but then immediately demand all their food and resources. Well, the Soviets kind of do the same thing. Ukrainian peasants are forced to grow grain, harvest the grain, and then turn it over to the government to meet grain quotas. If Ukrainians don't meet their grain quota, they have to pay a meat tax, This means turning over any cows or goats that they relied on for food for their families or their farms. The end result is that Soviet Russia confiscates the grain grown in Ukraine and steals much of the livestock on the land as well. Millions of Ukrainians die as a result. Eventually, almost everyone in the Soviet Union realizes that this new collectivization policy isn't exactly going great, and it's leading to the death of millions. So suddenly there is a few hushed murmurings about the possibility of replacing this old Stalin guy, you know, offing him, assassinating him. And Stalin becomes aware that everybody's pissed off at him. So instead of stepping aside and giving somebody else a chance to implement some new policies that might yield better results, Stalin decides the best course of action is to kill everyone that he suspects may be plotting against him. In the late 1930s, the Great Terror, or the Great Purge, takes place, and it's estimated that up to 1.2 million more people die during this period. Many Ukrainian peasants are shipped off to concentration camps and never return home. So the 1930s are a pretty rough time for Ukrainian peasants. First, you starve because your crops and your livestock are stolen. And then if you complain about that, you get shipped off to a concentration camp or killed. And this is another pattern that you'll see occur in this region throughout time. When bad policies are put into place and people start to speak up and express their dissatisfaction about the state of their life and country... The leaders in charge don't take heed and change policies to make life better. They just kill a bunch of people and hope that those left living are afraid and don't speak up and ask for more rights or express dissent anymore. As the 1930s come to an end, by 1939, Hitler has been ruling over Germany for the past six years. In August of 39, the Soviets and the Nazis strike a deal to split up Central Europe and Eastern Europe between the two powers. This alliance between the Russians and the Nazis was known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This agreement was a non-aggression pact and land agreement where the Soviet Union took over Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Eastern Poland, and the Nazis took over Western and Central Poland and a part of Czechoslovakia. As a consequence of this agreement between the Russians and the Nazis, Soviet Ukraine expands its border to the west, basically to the western border that Ukraine has today. All the Ukrainians that were in Poland, that had been enjoying those increased freedoms during the 1920s and 30s while living under Polish rule, developing and participating in political parties teaching, or performing religious services in the Ukrainian language, publishing Ukrainian newspapers. Well, all these freedoms go away once the Soviets take over these Polish lands. Almost two years after this alliance between the Soviets and the Nazis, and much to the surprise of Soviet leader Stalin, on June 22nd, 1941, the Nazis shocked the Russians by invading the Soviet Union. Sensing a moment of chaos and change, Ukrainian nationalists rise up, and they view this as another opportunity to declare independence. If you remember during World War I, the Germans invaded Eastern Europe, and the Ukrainians declared their independence in response. Well, this is the sequel to that. In June 1941, during World War II, Germans invade Ukraine, and again, the Ukrainians declare their independence again. This time, however, things don't go so well for the Ukrainians. The Nazis have no interest in having an independent Ukrainian state next to them, so the Nazis send off about 80% of the Ukrainian nationalists to German camps. Throughout 1941, the Nazis are successful in pushing through Eastern Europe and into Russia, but then the tide of the war turns in 1942 and 1943. After winning the Battle of Stalingrad, the Soviets turn the Germans around and drive them out of Soviet lands. By October 1944, the Nazis have been driven westward and are completely removed from Soviet Ukraine. It's worth keeping in mind that as the Soviets drive the Germans out of Soviet territory, the Soviets are also changing the population of Soviet-controlled lands along the way. In 1944, Crimea, a land that at one time was almost 100% Crimean Tatars during the 18th century, was changed dramatically as the Soviets deported the remaining 180,000 Crimean Tatars to Uzbekistan. By the end of 1944, There were basically no Crimean Tatars on Crimea at all. The Tatars went from 100% of the population in Crimea to 0% of the population in just a few centuries. The Soviets also accused many Ukrainians of being Nazi collaborators and deported or killed hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians out of suspicion of aiding the enemy or seeking independence. In 1945, World War II ends, and the Soviets and Western powers agree to borders for Ukraine that are basically the same borders the Soviets agreed to with the Nazis. Prior to World War II, as we discussed earlier, many Ukrainians lived inside Poland alongside Poles. Poland was an interesting mix of people with Western culture and Western ideals. After World War II... Many Ukrainians are deported out of Poland. Post-World War II, there's a growth of a sort of cultural friction between Ukrainians and Russians. There's a belief in Russia that Russians are a bit superior to Belarusians or Ukrainians because Russia was never completely taken over by the Nazis. Russia never fell completely under Nazi control like Ukraine and Belarus had. You know, the Russians were strong and stood their ground and Ukrainians were weak or collaborators with the Nazis. It's worth noting that more Ukrainians died fighting against the Nazis than the Americans, British, and French forces combined. Another point to add about the cultural friction between Ukrainians and Russians is due to Poland. Many Ukrainians were impacted and influenced by Polish and Western culture. Russians viewed Ukrainians as more cosmopolitan than Russians. They believe Ukrainians were negatively influenced or tainted by Western ideals and Western culture. The years after World War II brought more changes to Soviet Ukraine. Another famine hit Soviet Ukraine in 1946 and 1947. That claims 300,000 Ukrainian lives. With this new territory in the West that used to be Poland and is now Soviet Ukraine, there's a lot of repression towards Ukrainian nationalists. Almost half a million Ukrainians are deported from Western Ukraine in an attempt to squash nationalist movements. The Greek Catholic Church, a major church in Western Ukraine, was outlawed by the Soviets in 1949. So the Soviets are still battling to try and kill Ukrainian identity. And any aspirations, Ukrainians might have to establish their own culture or develop more autonomy. In 1953, eight years after the end of World War II, Joseph Stalin dies and is replaced by Nikita Khrushchev. A year later in 1954, at the 300-year anniversary of the Cossacks' pledging their allegiance to the Russian Tsar during the year 1654, Khrushchev decides to celebrate this 300th anniversary, and he gifts the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine. This giving over of Crimea to Ukraine in 1954 really happened more out of practicality than anything. Ukraine was the only republic to share a land bridge with Crimea. And when Crimea needs electricity or water, or food, it was going to come from Ukraine anyways. It was probably a nice gesture at the time. It didn't mean a whole lot. Ukraine was firmly under Soviet control. So in 1954, Crimea becomes a part of Ukraine, yes, but Crimea also goes from being under Soviet control to being under Soviet control. That fact doesn't really change that much. Throughout the rest of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, Ukraine stays solidly under Soviet control. But during the 1980s, the Soviet Union starts to approach a tipping point. Throughout the 80s, the Soviet Union continually weakens due to economic woes, rising inflation, there's a scarcity of goods, too much focus on defense spending and weapons development, and an unsuccessful war in Afghanistan. In April 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster inside Ukraine really weakened the Soviet Union to a point of no return because the people living inside the USSR completely lost their confidence in their leaders. Soviet leaders appeared weak, corrupt, and inept to many of the people living inside the Soviet Union. For a long period of time during the 1960s and 70s, Soviet leader Brezhnev had ruled over the Soviet republics with an iron fist. Any group inside a republic that started speaking out in favor of independence, well, they were quickly dealt with. During the 1980s, there was a lot of dissatisfaction amongst the people living inside the Soviet Union, that they couldn't make a decent living, and there was a shortage of goods and food at stores. Soviet people thought to themselves, Hey, our Soviet leaders can't even keep a nuclear plant operating safely. And when an accident occurs, we can't count on them to be honest with us about what happened and how to protect ourselves. Soviet leaders couldn't win a war against an enemy with far fewer resources in Afghanistan. The whole situation just seemed dysfunctional to many people inside the Soviet Union. The leader of the USSR during the 1980s was Mikhail Gorbachev. And he reacted to this dissatisfaction by trying to institute economic reforms and create more latitude for people to protest and criticize the government. This new freedom to levy complaints against the government actually hastened the downfall of the USSR. Many republics across the Soviet Union filled with people of different ethnicities that had been desiring their own autonomy for a long period of time, well, they start to see this as a moment to break free from the Soviet Union and end being ruled over by distant leaders in Moscow. By 1991, under all these internal pressures that we just outlined, the USSR begins to collapse. In late August 1991, Ukraine's Soviet parliament approves a Declaration of Independence. On December 1st, 1991, a referendum is held across Ukraine where Ukrainians get to vote yes or no on whether they support the Declaration of Independence or not. Over 84% of registered voters in Ukraine turn out to vote, and of those 84% of voters that voted, over 92% vote for, in favor of Ukrainian independence. So in December 1991, after many different attempts across the centuries, from the Cossacks to the Ukrainians during World War I, and then again in World War II, finally Ukraine becomes its own independent country in late 1991. We're going to take a pause here at the halfway point of the 35th episode of PCPC. Part 2 of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 will be out next week. Thank you again for listening to PCPC. Remember to go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod for 10% off your first month. Our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thank you to the Patreon crew. I hope you're all enjoying the holiday season and not stressing out too hard. Don't worry about buying gifts. Your family and friends just want to spend quality time with you. We'll be back with part two in a couple days. Until then, I hope you're enjoying your December and eating a lot of cookies. Cookies are great this time of year. I love you all, and we'll talk to you again in a week. Until next time, bye-bye.